Welcome back to Crime Capsule. It's a pleasure to have you. Today we're continuing our interview with Jesse Sublett, author of the book, 1960s Austin Gangsters, Organized Crime That Rocked the Capitol, out now from Arcadia Publishing. When we last left off, it was 1965, and for the last five years, Timmy Overton and his gang had been living high on the hog in Austin, committing every crime they were making and coming up with a few new ones to boot. But as Jesse was telling us, the glory days of the Austin branch of the Dixie Mafia were about to come screeching to a halt. Late that year, a little town called Mobiti, way up in the Texas Panhandle, would prove, he said, to be their Waterloo. What happened in Mobiti? Mobiti was the end of uh, a string of burglaries that these guys had gone out on, almost uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, maybe. They should have known that they were under surveillance, and they should have known that they couldn't keep this up, but maybe they figured, well, what the hell, This is we're having a ball. Uh, but the task force organized between Ernie with the state forces and Austin City Police, also reached out to law enforcement all over the state and other surrounding states, alerting them that the Overtons were out burglarizing banks and uh, to be on the lookout. And the intelligence told them that they might be in North Texas. And, you know, this was quite an accomplishment at that time because local law enforcement agencies didn't necessarily cooperate with each other. In fact, you know, just like in some of your sort of southern uh, redneck movies, they were actually regarding their jurisdiction as their own private fiefdom. If uh, the feds or another uh, agency told them that uh, some outlaws were in their county, they would just say, well, fuck off. It's my county. I'll take care of it. I don't, I don't need your help. And in fact, they might make a deal with these guys. You just didn't know. Communications weren't what they are today. Uh, they didn't operate on the same frequency. So they had uh, circulated these bulletins, which had do- uh, literally dozens of uh, characters on them who were uh, associated with the gang. And then they also had page after page after page of uh, cars that were associated with these guys. Uh, not all of them were Cadillacs, but a lot of them were. This heist went wrong because they had intelligence that they were in North Texas. They had a source in uh, Shamrock who was keeping tabs on uh, one of their close friends named uh, Donald Two Jump Sparks. And so they got in touch with him to see how the lay of the land was there. So when they got to Mobiti, they had uh, they had been staying in uh, Amarillo, and uh, that was their base of operations. They, they, they went on some, uh, some trips around the area that I, I'm not sure why, but they came down to Mobiti from uh, Canadian, Texas. I'm I'm not that familiar with the area, but, you know, it's up in the very panhandle, that rectangular top of the state, actually, where prairie land, and it's very empty. It's kind of, excuse me for saying so, kind of trashy. Mobiti is a, a just a tiny town of about 200 people in 1966. Today, I believe it's uh, 200 people. 
Well, they, they, they came through town, and a night watchman was on the lookout and spotted them. I believe he was in a beauty shop when uh, he spotted them, and so he stayed inside the beauty shop uh, looking out the window, and he saw them come back through town when they dropped the guys off to the driver, dropped the guys off to uh, go to the bank through the alley, parked the car on the road to the dump about a half mile away. And so Night Watchman saw them, and he uh, phoned the county uh, sheriff's office, which was in Wheeler County, about, I don't know, 15 minutes away. The deputy came. The boys were working on the vault and stuff when they heard gunshots. turned out that the deputy was shooting out or trying to shoot out the tires on the Cadillac. I think he expended quite a bit of ammunition trying to hit them all. So that alerted the guys, and they sprang out of the bank and went in about in uh, four different directions. It was snowing and raining, and I visited that area, and I was just astonished that, you know, there's hardly any trees up there even. Some of these guys were at large for uh, three and a half days. Jerry and uh, Hank were apprehended, I don't know, about three three hours later. They were uh, they had stolen a pickup truck. They told the cop they're working for the guy, except, uh, you know, Jerry's wearing his uh, alligator shoes <laughs> <laughs> and, and a red pullover. And I forgot what the uh, what Hank was wearing, but Jerry had $3,400 on him. I forgot what Hank had. Plus, they had a, a semi-automatic rifle in the car, so, you know, it... The cops just didn't buy that story. (laughs) And so they got arrested. (laughs) I was struck by your description of what happened to, um, I mean, Lucky Brown stops to eat breakfast at a (laughs) Denny's where he's picked up. (laughs) Yeah, he almost got away. He he slipped into the hotel. Uh, He'd been at large the longest. uh, So it was all messy. He had gone up to the uh, atomic weapons plant to bum a ride from a security guard. Security guard gave him a ride. Then the security guard started thinking about that guy, and he, he had heard the bulletin about these bank robbers on the loose and thought, oh, Mayor's have phoned that in. And so he did. And and uh, the, the guys who were watching his motel, I don't know what they did, if they went off to get breakfast themselves or what. So he had managed to slip in and take a shower and uh, grab some stuff, but he stops to eat breakfast. And then they they catch up with him. Uh, there was a police chase. Uh, Tim and um, Lucky had been. They made pretty good time. They made it down to Route 66 and stole a, a dump truck, but ran into a, a roadblock, which is a very good, exciting scene for the movie whenever that gets made. So... I have, to, I have to say, I was impressed. I mean, before they find that dump truck, Tim makes it 30 miles on foot. I mean, you were speaking earlier about his athletic prowess. I mean, here's, here's proof of that, right? Yeah. And he had uh, just, what, a little over a month earlier, uh, had been shot and still had a bullet lodged in his back. He had to have been in pain. I, I really respect his uh, physical prowess there. You write that after Mabidi, and I'm going to quote you here, you say, everybody who wasn't in jail already was headed there soon. Mabidi represents really the first major indictment that the Fed can bring against the Overton gang. But even that doesn't quite pan out the way that the government wants it to. What happened there? 
the funny thing, you know, they didn't actually catch them in the bank. So there's a little bit of deniability there. And the, the guys had been very careful not to leave fingerprints. Uh, but now and then, uh, if uh, they had to leave a bank in a hurry, they would leave little things behind, like the, the blocks that they would put underneath a, a safe to pull it out from the wall, uh, occasionally a tool. The task force had collected clues, forensic clues here and there, nothing great. They had uh, statements from informants. Anyway, so the, all that went into the uh, federal case. But Mobiti, what they did was they charged the five of them with bank burglary there, conspiracy, and the guys played out because they were told that they would not be prosecuted for this again. This was the the only conviction, right? That was a promise from the U.S. attorney there. And so the Western District indicted them. Uh, they used uh, Mobiti as the uh, linchpin in their conspiracy, bank burglary conspiracy indictment. When uh, that was challenged in court, the U.S. attorney said, but that was the Northern District. This is the this is the Western District. We never <laughs> promised that we would <laughs> not use that case against you. Uh, because otherwise, all they had was little bits of conspiracy allegations, which might have worked out. Now, it's also apparent from your book that the jail time that they serve while waiting for the trial is just as ridiculous and over-the-top as the heists themselves. I mean, you have the gang members getting out on bail uh, at various times and going to rob more banks while they're out just for a few hours at a time. You have these guys barring their jail cell doors so they couldn't physically appear in court. They have to be broken up with tear gas. Uh, and then there there are some other more salacious aspects, which I'm going to let you uh, describe because I'm not sure that I am supposed to, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it was a, just a lot of things in bad taste. Uh, at one point, when they were being held in Del Rio, uh, Del Rio, people would come by and holler things at the window. The, the guys would flash them and and make uh, really lecherous remarks to them. The really uh, big thing that uh, everybody remembers, and, you know, it's funny, I've been told the story <laughs> a hundred times, I think, by different cops and lawyers who say, well, you know, what happened was, and what happened was the guys, especially Tim and Jerry, they would ha have their girlfriends come to uh, talk to them down in the holding cell, and they would get the, uh, one of the lawyers to to watch, uh, I mean, uh, stand guard duty, while uh, the, the girls serviced them through the bars. No one's told me exactly physically uh, how they hooked up, but, you know, where there's a will, there's a way, and you can put a picture in your mind. But this really happened. So the trial is just as surreal as the pretrial detention. The evidentiary matters are just farcical. I think my favorite that you write about is the bank directory that the Fed had seized in the evidence hall. It was a bank directory, a book, of course, you know, physical book in those days, uh, which had a list of all the different banks in the in the region. And uh, the first state bank of Mobiti, which is the one that the gang had hit, was circled 
right? I mean, it was... Yeah, <laughs> and, and looks on, bad. Yeah, but on the stand, of course, not a single one of the perps knows anything about it. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was a good one. You know, they, they, they also, one thing we haven't talked about is they would also rob gambling games. You know, they might be playing a game one night, and the next night they come back with uh, hoods on and shotguns and uh, hold up the, the uh, game. So they had a collection of leather hoods and ponchos and stuff uh, and uh, big guns uh, that were also seized uh, during this time. The, the, uh, the amount of, of that kind of evidence that was presented in court was just, you know, they had to build a lot of tables to hold all this stuff. And they also uh, brought a safe, a cannonball safe that uh, uh, Tim had purchased, a used one, to uh, experiment on. So they brought that, and that that wasn't brought inside the courtroom. The, the people had to go outside to look at that. You write about the sort of special tools that Ernie Scholl had used. He had kind of more or less doctored these tools so that whenever the gang used them on particular safes, they would leave telltale marks. You also have witnesses flipping like Fat Jerry's girlfriend. But it's interesting because by the end of the trial, the Fed, there's a lot of evidence against them. It's it's not all kind of uh, fun and games. But the Fed only got six convictions out of 20 total indictments. Why Why was there such a poor showing here? I think they indicted a number of people just to put pressure on them to confess and uh, turn state's witness. Also, that applying pressure to the guys just throw them off their game. I think they also just overreached. It didn't really look good because the trial cost so much money and the more defendants you had, the more chances for chaos because uh, these girls would come uh, come into court on Monday morning uh, looking like they'd spent the weekend working really hard. And and you mean working in a very particular sense, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're doing what they did. And, and uh, uh, you know, just to reinforce what you said earlier about the, it being a system, uh, some of the girls worked at a facility called the Poodle Farm in San Antonio. And uh, one of the lawyers, Freddie Man, uh, Saman, would uh, show up on, uh, I don't know, Friday or s- Saturday night uh, to collect his money from the girls. Anyway, there was that aspect, and they would, uh, the, uh, several of these girls would have uh, what they called seizures during court. And uh, what that meant, I don't know. You know, they might have passed out from drugs, or I don't. Uh, who knows? But uh, that happens uh, a number of times. So, yeah, it was a mess. <laughs> I think that might be the understatement of the uh, of the year. Nevertheless, because of what happened at Mobiti and because of uh, some obstruction of justice charges, you know, Tim Tim goes and more or less engages in a little witness tampering on the side. He gets five years, and he does his time. It's 1972. By the time Tim gets out of the penitentiary, the gang has fallen apart. His his longtime girlfriend, Judy, has gone to Houston. Many of his former accomplices have been murdered. You name five of them in the book. He gets out. He is 
declared to have been reformed by the judge, which is kind of a laugh. He goes up to Dallas, and he gets a new girlfriend, and he gets some new clothes, probably some new alligator shoes, and he also gets some new ideas about taking over that city too. It's kind of it's kind of proof that you can take the tiger out of the jungle, but you can't take the jungle out of the tiger, right? But none of these new ideas pan out, do they? I'm not sure exactly what was going on. I mean, I, there was always this outsized aspect to Tim. Uh, we don't really talk about it. He had a great sense of humor. He was a prankster. And uh, he, he was always talking about taking over. Whether that was a joke, I don't think it was a joke. In fact, one of his old uh, school buddies uh, told me about when they were like uh, nine or ten. And they walked past uh, one of the... Uh, brothels that was uh, downtown at that time. And Tim was sitting on the, the steps and saying, hey, I'm the star boss of this outfit. You know, so maybe he even had ambitions back then. I don't know. When uh, one of his uh, old school buddies, a, a lawyer, ran into him right after he got out of uh, Leavenworth, he said, hey, what are you doing? He said, hey, I just uh, rented an office. I'm, uh, I'm taking over this town. And he had rented an office in a in a building, kind of an interesting area uh, on the edge of downtown, and yet there were certain spurious uh, businesses uh, set up there. There was a bookie, there was a uh, nearby, there was a, they called it the country, it was called a country store, and, and they sold art, but uh, the, the the guy who ran the place was a, uh, a fence also. There were a lot of fences around there. Anyway, so he had set up an office, said he was taking over. He was all, uh, supposed to be taking over the sports book of a major uh, Dallas gambler. And uh, with uh, Freddie Hedges, who was a longtime member of, uh, of his team. But he had also planned to uh, you know, pull this uh, art burglary uh, with uh, Little Larry, uh, another uh, guy he'd grown up with and, and who was a, a little bit of a different stripe. Uh, I, he might have done some burglary and stuff like that, but he was ma- mainly a gambler and an up-and-coming hitman. I think it was also a, a, a police informant by that time. But uh, Little Larry was kind of a mean guy. And uh, one of the stories goes that uh, the people in Dallas who wanted the art that they were going to steal uh, told Larry that, uh, yes, we want the uh, goods, but we also want you to, uh, to kill Timmy Overton. And he said, okay. And... I don't know. Also, they say that uh, Timmy was uh, making moves in Dallas, maybe Fort Worth, and the guys there just didn't want him um, around. Uh, And also, things had changed. I mean, some of the people in Austin were probably behind it also, because the guys like Hiram Reed and and various other names I don't want to mention, uh, they didn't want him around anymore either. Timmy represented that sort of cowboy style of uh, outlaw, and uh, people were just doing things differently then. He was uh, assassinated by Larry, along with his uh, girlfriend. Uh, And it was made very obvious that they were were hit because uh, they were shot in the head several times, and uh, the, the cash that they had on them was left, you know. I think Timmy had uh, eight hundred dollars on him. His girlfriend had at least a hundred, 
And uh, so Larry was at large for uh, several months. He had been spotted having his uh, hosing out the inside of his car at a car wash at like two in the morning. And it was a freezing temperatures. It was not really a typical time to to go to the car wash. And uh, he dumped some of the evidence at uh, at uh, Lake Ray Hubbard, which was a favorite uh, dumping spot for a Dixie Mafia uh, at that time, and uh, was caught up with in uh, Alabama, right? And brought back to town. I, and uh, this is one of the cases where I, I, I got the criminal file from the county office and... Um, there's all this stuff about evidence in there and stuff, and, like, things get delayed. He hires uh, Charlie Tesmer, who was the top criminal attorney at that time, at least in Dallas. If you're a gangster, you, you know, you would hire Charlie. And uh, it gets probation, 10 years probation, which was uh, cut in about half at uh, a few years later uh, after he... I think very mysteriously uh, located a plane load of pot on a ranch that he had been working at uh, in South Texas. And Larry's family owned some property around Atascosa, which is just uh, the southern part of, part of uh, Bear County, I believe. And uh, he comes upon this uh, plane load of pot. Yeah. Uh, and the sheriff says, oh, Larry's a great guy, and he's always been a great guy, and he found this pot, you know, and he deserves Might a break. Might be a contract killer, but he's a great guy, yeah. you know. So, but he's our guy, you know. So he got off, and uh, he, uh, not long afterwards, he was uh, arrested on a weapons charge, and then in 79, he was uh, hanging out with Charles Harrelson, uh, scouting uh the assassination of uh, Judge John Wood, stuff like that. What is Tim's legacy? Do people still talk about him in Austin, the places he hung out, the bars and the dance halls and the music joints? Does he still cast a shadow in Bat City? Tim does still have a legacy here. Uh, people who knew him, people who, who were around that that. Uh, or uh, remember it. He was a tough guy, yet uh, several guys I talked to said that he looked out for them. You know, he was a, if, if he said he would protect you, you know, you didn't have to worry. He had lots and lots and lots of girlfriends. I've done talks where women would come up to me and say, I dated Timmy, you know, and they're, they're happy about it. You know, and people, it's a, Funny, it's like they they picture the Timmy that they knew, and that's that's Timmy, you know. The stuff that came later, um, yeah, he did that, but, you know, Timmy was a good guy. And people would say the Overtons, you know, uh, and it did this, they did that, they used to hang out here or there, and they met the whole tribe, you know. Uh, and and, and it, was a, it, it was a culture of uh, not just ex-athletes who had gone bad, but lots and lots and lots of used car salesmen. Back then, when you said used car salesmen, it, it was a it was a lifestyle that, that encompassed a whole lot of stuff. Not just uh, maybe selling you a, a lemon, but uh, going off and doing a burglary job that night, uh, 
uh, hooking up uh, with your heroin dealer, you know, these gamblers and safe crackers and uh, used car salesmen. It, it, it was a whole culture. And, and, and there was something about Tim that my best source on all this, uh, I call her Betty King in the book. She's deceased now. Her real name was uh, Betty, uh, Betty Jo Overton. Uh, she married Daryl. She said, you know, Tim, he actually wasn't very good looking, but uh, his personality, he would just light up, and he would be really funny, ridiculous. He and uh, Jerry Ray were like uh, like Laurel and Hardy together. They're doing all this stupid stuff that they thought was hilarious, but also sometimes just crazy in a, in a bad way, where you just wanted to you know, be somewhere else. And he had this thing... That, he, he, he was not kind to his girlfriends or wives. In fact, he, he was cruel in uh, awful ways. But yet, like with Betty, she was his confidant and his friend. He left all his, uh, his, his photo albums and uh, mementos that meant a lot to him. And uh, in fact, I uh, met with his uh, one of his girlfriend's from high school, and she brought along to our meeting a big box of stuff that he had left with her, including his diploma. So what does that say about him? I don't know, but it's touching. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. You know, Jesse, I, I thought several times as I was reading your account that Tim really was, in a sense, a Shakespearean villain. He was not one-sided. He was incredibly layered as a person. And yet there's this tension, isn't there, because Shakespeare writes all the world's a stage and all its men and women merely players, right? Tim played a role. The gang played a role, and many of these roles were predefined. They were almost predestined. And one of the great tragedies of your book, not just the trail of broken bodies and, and broken safes dumped in cow pastures, but one of the great tragedies of your book is that there never seemed to be any capacity for change in their lives. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you know, one thing that uh, hooked me on this thing early on, when I kept trying to get a hold of it and uh, figure out how to make it into a, a palatable story, I kept reading the ending and thinking, like, well, did it really turn out like that? I mean, I was thinking, like, there was, uh, if just um, one guy told me if just one thing had. T- one thing had turned out right for Tim, had not 
fallen apart. He, he, he could have come back. But, you know, I don't know if that's true or not. You know, like you say, it, it doesn't seem to be an avenue for a happy ending. And they're like, you're right, they were playing parts. Uh, one of the cops in New York Best, George Pfeiffer, said, I really liked him. I liked him a lot. He, uh, but he was always trying to sell you something. He was, he was always trying to pull something over on you. So, yeah. How did you go about digging into the material for this book? Was it nerve-wracking researching the known underworld? I just couldn't help but think, you know, too many questions to the wrong people, and you start to attract some attention that maybe you didn't really want. Yeah, when I first started out, uh, Larry was was uh, not as old as he is now. <laughs> None of us were. You know, there was that. I was worried about it uh, because he was everybody. Some, some uh, people who knew him best said, "Look, there's not room enough in the world to run from little Larry." At one point, uh, I got a mistaken report that uh, Larry had died. I told this guy, "Look, he's uh, Larry's dead." He said, "He's not dead enough." <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I don't care, and so that was. That was that, that was frightening, seriously. And then, uh, my wife was concerned, too. He, he still owned some property here in town at that time, and so I wasn't sure if he was here or what, but I found out eventually that he was in, in Houston, and um, I think it's okay now. I, I, I got a cryptic message not too long ago on my uh, website, because at one point I, I wrote an essay uh, and I referred to little Larry as Big Ted uh, as a precaution. And uh, there was a message from, uh, Larry's last name is Culbreth. And so it was a message from a J.B. Culbreth that said, Big Ted, haha, that's pretty funny. <laughs> so I don't know if that was actually Larry or a son or what, but uh, that, yeah, that was frightening. But uh, mostly uh, I talked to some a few old characters, not too many, not enough, but uh, one guy, an, an ex-pimp and uh, um, character, uh, he was in his 70s, and he was small and wiry. He had been a, a you know, flyweight boxer or something uh, um, in his uh, 20s, and uh, I swear, he was so full of energy. I swear, I, I felt like if I, I said the wrong thing, he would... Uh, not break my jaw. Um, and in fact, at the end of the interview, he said, uh, so look, uh, so what am I going to get out of this? <laughs> he wanted to be paid. And I said, no, nothing. Uh, but I just kept pouring through newspapers back then. It was microfish. And, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was tough. Uh, those things are hard on your eyes for one thing. And then, it's tiring sitting in that chair, yeah. Yeah, but uh, over the years, newspapers.com, their search engine has uh, gotten better and better and better, and so I go back and find more and more stuff, and I keep collecting, and I, I sometimes I don't know why, but uh, like I said, just this, just yesterday, I, I learned that uh, this forgery thing that Tim started out on was a statewide thing. It wasn't just local, which uh, adds more perspective. There you go. Another another wrinkle to the story. You remind me of our conversation last week with Janice Tracy, who wrote about 
sort of the bootlegging trade in, in Mississippi and the Dixie Mafia aspects over there. I mean, one of the things that she had to do in her research as well was you got to know somebody. You got to know who to ask, where to go for the questions. And you start following these clues and these leads just like an actual investigator would, yeah. don't you? Yeah, yeah. And, and you got and sometimes you've got to get a sense of when people are lying to you. I mean, Ernie was I thought very, very forthright and honest, but there were certain things I know that he lied to me about. And some things I it, it, it hits me years later I realized, oh, oh, he was lying to me. Like when he marked the tools, you know, this is when uh uh Chester claimed that the the other cops beat the shit out of him. Well, Hmm. So Ernie is prowling around in the in the shed, marking the tools, and uh, Chester is uh, in his house. Then he comes up with all these injuries. Yeah, I think he was getting getting uh, pretty well beat up, but uh, but Ernie claimed it was baloney. As I was reading, your book is kind of like a a bloodhound on a scent. I mean, you're you're chasing this story and you're chasing this story and it's always just a little bit ahead of you, but you keep, you keep going after it and finding the next new wrinkle, the next dimension. And even though Tim's story ends in 1972, uh, your story of trying to understand that time period and what was happening in Austin and in Texas does not end. In fact, you have another book coming out on a related topic, don't you? Yeah. Frank Smith was a, a bail bondsman and a junkyard kingpin here in Austin, and he had, was very powerful, and he was part of the scene when uh, Timmy Overton was operating, but he was not as active as he... His real period was the 70s, uh, when uh, his junkyard empire... He controlled uh, the auto salvage in town until a... Uh, a broker started uh, here in town working with the insurance companies. And uh, the, the, the 70s story really marks Austin's transition to a, a big city because a lot of things were unregulated and uh, kind of wild west, like like ambulances, for example. If, if there was a car wreck on the edge of town, it, they didn't call it EMS. Uh, they just called you know, the uh, the hearses from the funeral homes would race out there. And sometimes there'd be a rag, sometimes there'd be a fist fight. Same with the uh, record drivers. You know, it was the Wild West. And that was also part of a, 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 a sort of a underworld scene. And uh, it was all tied together. And uh, uh, so uh, Frank ended up with a lot of power in the county. And then uh, Ronnie Earl was elected district attorney, 1977. His first big case was a trial against Frank for organizing this ridiculous, over-the-top Dixie Mafia a robbery of a, a rival. And uh, what compelled me about it is that, like, just like with the Overton gang, you, you read a story about these events, and there are elements that you think, did I read that right? Did that really happen? And and there's so much context woven into the story where, like, the reporter knows what actually happened, but he can't, like, come out and say it, you know, yet. And also everybody else in town 
probably knows what really happened, but they can read between the lines. So I had I had to play catch up and read a hundred stories before I, I I really knew what was going on. And once once I ran a you know went that far, I was totally over my head with this thing. Your being in over your head comes uh, at great benefit to us as your readers. And uh, Jesse, I would love just to sit here all day and talk about this stuff with you. It has been such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Yeah, man. I dug it. It's been great. Got great questions. Thanks as always for listening. Our guest has been Jesse Sublet, author of 1960s Austin Gangsters, Organized Crime That Rocked the Capitol, available from ArcadiaPublishing.com. Crime Capsule will take a short break for Christmas and return in the new year with the best of true crime writing and a brand new slate of author interviews. Join us, and from all of us here in the studio, we wish you the happiest of holidays. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. A special thanks to our producer, Bill Huffman, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, production director, Bridget Coyne, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To find out more about Crime Capsule or our dozens of other shows, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Three AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing four one one. Night Marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian Devil Worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go.